Okay, um, it's super brilliant to have you with us, Susan. Um, this is the first time we're kind of recording with a third party, and I'm super stoked that it's you, Susan. You're kicking us off at such a great level, so thank you for joining us. Thank you, I'm very honoured. Oh, fabulous. So we're here at the restaurant, so there's going to be a little bit of background no- noise, but that's all very delicious sounding, so hopefully it's a good inspiration for our little chat today. Um, Susan, you're joining us. Um, you've launched... Um, this fabulous, fabulous cookbook, Kung Pao Chicken and Beyond, or Kung Pao and Beyond. Um, and um, it's, it, it's really our privilege to have you here with us, your, your visit to London. We sort of ca- caught you at this point. But I really wanted to just um, take you back a little bit and talk a little bit about your background and your trajectory here and sort of see what kind of connections we can make with the kind of stuff that we end up talking about in Exo South, about identity, about um, culinary life, about cooking and the deeper meanings behind it, culture, history. So, yeah, I just wanted to ask, first of all, you know, you, 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 your background was in journalism in California, and then you... English Lit, apologies, that's right, English Lit in, in uh, San Francisco, that's right, isn't it, UC Berkeley. And then you pivoted, you pivoted to um, taking on an apprenticeship, a pastry-making apprenticeship in the Hyatt Group, is that right? Um, so, yeah, that's cute. I mean, it would have been perhaps around uh, sort of mid to late 80s, yeah, something yeah, along that line. Early, early after I graduated from UC Berkeley a long, long time ago, and then um, my degree was English Lit, and I used to love to cook for my friends. I was trying to decide, should I go to journalism school? Um, and in the meantime, you know, I took just very simple jobs, and I would cook for my friends, just invite a whole big group of people over and, and cook for them. And one of my friends said to me one day, you love to cook so much, why don't you become a chef? And I thought, I had never thought of that. I, I thought, what a great idea. And um, so I uh, liked to do pastries, and plus I didn't want to go home smelling of garlic. So I decided to do pastry, and I <laughs> took a, a pastry apprenticeship with a higher agency in San Francisco. And um, it was two years of just doing pastries, and I loved it. And um, that's how I became a pastry chef. And I knew that if I became a chef, I could go anywhere in the world and get a job. And how did it? How did you? How did that work out? I mean, did it? Did, was it a question of um, asking to be let into those professional kitchen and and just finding yourself at a station and just doing it Monday to Friday, or? Did it? Did it, did people need convincing, or was there a program you joined, or what, what was what was that about? It was the San Francisco Culinary Arts Program, oh, okay. um, and they took culinary apprentice, apprentices for three years and pastry apprentices for two. Uh, I don't know if it still exists. I hope it still exists because it was a really great program. So instead of going to culinary school where I would have to pay a lot, I was being paid to work. So I worked five days a week and I went to school one day a week. So it was very hands-on. Oh. Can I ask how was the um, how was the 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 difference in culture when you first went into a professional kitchen, coming from a, an academic background? Um, in the Bay Area at the time, people were at the time. I mean, this was in the eighties. People even then were starting to do uh, cuisine, if even if they had a, a different type of background, because. Everybody loved to eat, um, and it was it wasn't unfashionable to be a chef. 
when I moved to Hong Kong, it was very different because people, I would get questions from my cooks saying, you went to university, why are you a chef? Um, people in Hong Kong at the time went into the culinary arts if they couldn't get into university. So then they went to a trade school, vocational trade school. You see, that's really interesting because there's a real kind of, and we talked about this really briefly, Susan, about this kind of uh, difference in class and status around tertiary education and that being a kind of gateway to something to something else, right? And I think, Andrew, you've experienced that too, right? Your, your family were keen for you not to be part of the restaurant empire here. Yeah, that was going to be my next question for Susan. What did they say when you told them? My parents are not that traditional. When I decided to do an English Lit degree, they never said, you know, do something practical like science and mathematics. They let me be an English Lit major. And then when I became, when I announced to them I was going to be a pastry chef, they suddenly switched and they became really traditional and it was shocking. They said, (laughs) why do you want to be a chef? We worked hard so you didn't have to, which is very Chinese or I don't know if it's very Asian. Um, So that was really surprising to me because they had never said that to me before. But now that I became, when I became food editor, they were suddenly very proud of me again. Mm-hmm. Is there something emotive about having a profession where you're working with your hands, where it, fit, where it, from the outside it's all very manual, but actually internally you know there's a lot of creativity, there's a lot of intellectual work going into actually being in a professional kitchen. But is there like this emotive vein among parents of a certain generation where they're like, oh gosh, you've touched the third rail here, Susan. Andrew, no, 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 <laughs> step away. <laughs> did your parents um, or did your mother um, try to discourage you from coming back? Um, no, I, I think but it was different, though, because my, my, my mother kind of was a little bit open but with vested interests. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was a kind of a, a trade-off going, well, if you don't go into it, I need to stay in it longer. Mm-hmm. So she was like... Yeah, go into it so I can retire quick and get out of the industry. She sacrificed her son. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. But I was, I was going to ask, when you were in these kitchens, did you feel did you feel like you were equipped with the same set of skills and did you have the same motivations and the same aspirations as the people that you're working with? I think a lot of the people, because it was a hotel, um, there were a lot of people who were in it because hotels is a very comfortable lifestyle if you're a cook. There's the union, you know, you, you can work a certain number of hours, or otherwise you get overtime. Unlike a lot of kitchens where it's, you know, shifts, it's just shift work and, and you work five shifts a week. In Hong Kong at the time, it was, um, when I moved to Hong Kong, it was a five and a half day work week, but it never was five and a half, it was six. Uh, so in, in working in hotels in the United States was very easy. Um, but I did have to work harder. I felt like I had to work harder to prove myself. I didn't want them to say, oh, let's never hire a um, UC Berkeley graduate because they don't work very hard. I wanted to make pave the way for other people, if they wanted to go into to cuisine or, or pastry, to be able to get a job because I was setting a good example. Mm. And what about your East and Southeast Asian heritage? Did that play any role in any of your decisions or, or how you felt you were you were incorporated into the kitchen life? Or was it just simply about, you've got the skills, come on, roll up your sleeves, get, get stuck in, Susan? Or? In, in the Hyatt Regency at the time, there were a lot of um, 
Chinese cooks. Mm. So they were very welcoming. But so so everybody else was welcoming as well. Um, it's funny because I had my first tailor-made jacket when I was an apprentice, my first day, because um, I was told to go down to the um, laundry room and get ja a jacket and trousers. And they gave me the smallest one, which was way too big for me. And the executive chef of the hotel said, what are you wearing? And I said, this is what they gave me. And they said, he said, way too big. So he made them make me tailor-made jacket, even though I was just an apprentice, um, tailor-made jacket and trousers that fit. So it was very welcoming. Hyatt was a great company to work for. Best not tell my team that. So anyway, you moved on to journalism afterwards from the kitchen. Was, that, was it just by chance? Was it serendipity? How did that transition happen? That was the... I was the best timing in the whole wide world. So after I moved to uh, Hong Kong as a pastry chef for a restaurant called the American Pie, which unfortunately no longer exists, um, I worked, I helped open one bakery and two restaurants in four years, which is great because people, you know, in other parts of the world don't have those opportunities, you know, in their lifetime. I helped I, I helped open one bakery and two restaurants in four years, which is, you know, really great. Um, but I, because the hours were so long, and in Hong Kong, I mean, the higher you move up in the hierarchy, you don't get any any fewer hours like you might in, in other countries. So I was working really long hours, having no days off. And then I wanted to get back into writing. So my boyfriend at the time said, oh, I met this guy who's the deputy features editor of the South China Morning Post. Um, and he, I told him about you, and he's interested in meeting you. So I met with him, just expecting to get career advice. And at the end of the conversation, he said, Susan, I'm really embarrassed to offer you this, but it's the only position we have at the time that, that would, you would fit in. Would you like to be office assistant for the South China Morning Post, for the features desk? And that was going from being a pastry chef to handing out faxes, answering telephones, doing whatever errands um, the staff wanted me to do. So it was a really huge step down in money and also kind of like, I don't want to say status, but I guess it was kind of status, like going from being in charge to being told what to do. So that was difficult, but because I worked so hard and I... I um, started writing for them, and I, soon I was making more money as a writer than I was as office assistant, because um, all my writing was paid as a freelance rate. And then six months later, they, uh, the features editor and deputy features editor took me out for lunch, and they said, Susan, the food editor just quit, which led to be the new food editor. It was the fastest promotion in <laughs> journalistic history, I think. And it was just because I worked hard. Um, I wasn't afraid to, to do you know, everything that I was told to do. And I happened to be in the right place at the right time. I, mean, I think a lot of people listening would think that's such a sweet spot. You've come out of um, a professional career in, a page, uh, in sort of food, and then you've um, found yourself in a career where you're writing about food. And somehow, I think most people would think, well, that's just a co like a, a coalescence of all sorts of amazing things. But was it hard? I mean, was it hard to kind of 
Because I know, Andrew, you had your first cookbook out in 2014, 20-something like that, right? And, and, and sort of going from, and of course you had your English lit background, but it would seem from the outside everything would have just fallen into place and your first pieces would have been, you know, easy to come out. You know, you, you, were, you were on your way. But was it, was it difficult to move from, you know, a culinary, a culinary professional sector into writing for a living and even if it was about food I mean how, how did that work out for you in the I don't think I would have got the job if I hadn't been pastry chef there were a lot of other freelancers at the time who had been working for the South China Money Post for much longer and I did question I was asking myself why did they ask me but it's because I have this very unusual background English degree and I was a chef so but you, but you're also like one of the only food journalists I know who have actually spent time working in the industry. I think a lot of people, a lot of the listeners, they will, you know, sometimes you assume that um, all food journalists, they, they know the ins and outs of the industry, but actually, they, a lot of them, 99% of them, I correct, in saying that, have not had first-hand experience in the industry. You know, Michelin inspectors are different. They've all worked in the industry for 10, 20 years. But for journalists, Susan, I think, is very, very unique in the sense that she has first hand experience of the industry and I think that gives you a, a very unique perspective when you're when you're talking to chefs or when you're when you're writing about restaurants in the sense that there's a there's a level of um, camaraderie there's a level of empathy I think that that some journalists don't have that they can be very kind of well you know that's it but it's not as simple as what's on the plate sometimes it, there's a lot of behind the scenes mm. narrative that goes on in order to create things and I think that's what gives Susan a very unique vantage point um, as a journalist? Well, occasionally I would get emails from people. I, I mean, I really hated giving negative reviews, and I never... Only when the food uh, the chef, I thought, was, wasn't trying, and it made me very angry, then I would get a... I would give a negative review, but I, I tried not to do that. And if, most of the time, if the, there was nothing positive to say about the restaurant, I just wouldn't write it, because... I just felt terrible about it. And, I mean, I would have to pay the cost myself because I did get reimbursed for restaurant reviews, but not if it didn't run. So I would, but I just felt really terrible about um, writing a totally negative review. But on the rare occasions that I did, um, I would occasionally get emails from people saying, do you know how hard it is to be a chef? Do you know what it's like to work in a kitchen? And I can say, yes, I do. So that was really, you know, it gave me authority. Can you tell me what does it, um, what's an experience where you feel like the chef's uh, not even trying? Um, <laughs> just asking for a friend. <laughs> no, just asking for a friend or two. It would just be really stupid um, platings. Like I remember the, the restaurant that made me really most angry was this, this really dumb thing where... Um, there was a plate of food, there was a wine glass turned upside down, and there was food underneath the bowl of the glass, and there was food on the bottom of the, the wine glass. So you had to take the food off the, the bottom of the wine glass, which was now the top, and then put it onto your plate, and then lift it up, and then the food would spill out. I just thought that was really disgusting. And I thought, what is the point of that? It's not pretty, it's ugly, it's, it just made me angry. And so, um, and the food was terrible. There was a, um, also on, in the same meal, there was a, a 
um, a um, rack of lamb, the meat hadn't been chined, so you you couldn't cut it. In, in normally, uh, a rack of lamb is a rack of lamb is chined, so it takes out the backbone, and you can just slice through between the ribs, and and it it's easy to cut. But because they didn't remove the backbone, it was impossible to cut easily, and that really made me angry. It's just a very lazy thing to do. Just make it easy for the eater. None of the food was easy to eat. And in the coming, so now you're talking from coming from a background, growing up in in the U.S. and going to Hong Kong. Mm. Did you see a difference in your perception of? Cantonese food or, or Chinese food when you're in Hong Kong at this time? Because you are we talking about what the 90s now? Right? No, this was um, this was yeah early 90s. Early 90s. So, I mean, you know, again, this is pre 97. So, mm. so what, what was your feeling of the vibe and the, um, the the food scene in general of of Hong Kong at this time? Well, I thought my family was pretty food obsessed, and then when I moved to Hong Kong, I realized everybody is food obsessed. Um, and it's great because, you know, you could just eat so much great food basically at any time of the day. You know, the restaurants were open all night, and I really loved that. Um, the, you know, Chinese-American food is very different from Hong Kong Chinese food, which is very different from British Chinese food. I'm not yet familiar with British Chinese food, but Chinese-American food is, is so different. Um, I think... Do you like it? I th- as long as I think of it as Chinese American food, there's okay. a, a place for Panda Express. There's a place for Yilo Deli. There's a place, you know, it's it's simple and it's fast and it fills you up and it's cheap. Um, is it refined like Hong Kong Chinese food is? No, but it fills the spot. Do you think there's been? Um, do you think '97 was some kind of hinge event in terms of the culinary sphere in Hong Kong? Um, I, I was there in 97 too and it felt like obviously it was a very political hinge, right? Very significant feeling of before and after. But in terms of the dining scene, what do you think, Susan? Did you think that there was some, there's something more or less Cantonese, Chinese, international about Hong Kong now or is that too simplistic a kind of bifurcation? I, after 97 there were a lot more independent restaurants that opened up, but I don't know if it had anything to do with with, with the handover. Mm-hmm. Um, it just happened that a lot of new restaurants opened, and they were not necessarily in hotels. Because when I moved from... I, w- uh, I was working at the Peninsula New York um, when I received the job in, in Hong Kong, and in New York... Nobody went to hotels if you want a good meal. You went to independent restaurants. Uh, hotel restaurants were considered a little bit fuddy-duddy. Um, and then if I had known that in Hong Kong a lot of people go to hotel restaurants, I would have tried to transfer with the peninsula. Um, as it was, I I, trans- I moved to this restaurant called the American Pie, and um, it was one of the few independent restaurants in Hong Kong. Um, outside a hotel um, and the hotel restaurants were really really good but um, then a lot of independent restaurants started opening up outside hotels Andrew you you had your research trip back in 20, 
2012, right? And were you mainly, so, you know, you're... Not 2012, before, 2009, I think, yeah. And, and so when you were traveling around China, it was mainly hotel restaurants, I guess, you were based in, or was that...? The ones that I was working in were hotel restaurants. Right, so there's still that kind of culture of hotel, hoteliers. Yeah, I mean, it really surprised me, actually, the level of um, dining in hotels. And just, as I said, the, the general acceptancy that you would just go to a hotel mm. to go and eat a really lovely meal. I, even in London at the time, when, when I was growing up as a child, if you go to a hotel, it was just like, well, you know, it's like a family day out. Mm. Maybe you use the spa at the same time. But if you wouldn't go for something really gastronomic, like you would never go to a hotel. You would go somewhere else. And I do remember, distinctly remember about Hong Kong and also about Dubai at the time. Like, it was the first time in my life, I was like, wow, people are really taking hotel gastronomy seriously. Um, and you know Dubai haven't taken it to the heights that Hong Kong has now. I mean, if you look at nowadays the the, the, the culinary scene in Hong Kong, it's if you look across the board of the probably the most famous restaurants in Hong Kong, probably sixty seventy percent of them are probably based in hotels at the moment. Is that correct? There's still a lot of people really good food in hotels. Yeah. I remember one time um, I was feeling unwell, and uh, my husband and I went to the Grand Hyatt. Uh, lobby restaurant just for a quick meal and I I said oh I really want wonton mean but I this is a 170 Hong Kong dollar bowl of wonton mean and he said just get it I said I can't spend that much money on wonton mean it's it's just too expensive I can go outside and have a bowl of wonton mean for you know 40 Hong Kong dollars um, and he said if you want it just get it and I ordered it feeling really terribly guilty and it was the best bowl that I've ever had it was so delicious um, so you get quality although you do pay for it yeah and what, what do you think about this thing about in Hong Kong because there are so so many artisanal producers in Hong Kong right? mm. people who make amazing like noodles. The noodles yeah the bamboo noodles mm. you know the as I said even people who make centurion eggs the dry seafood suppliers people who even make like dim sum pastries or whatever it might be do you think that transfers to a Western environment where there's this obsession with making everything from scratch yourself as a chef? Mm. I mean, you know, it, it, Cantonese food, like the classic one is, I still have not yet met to this day someone who uses and makes their own oyster sauce in their, in their cooking. And I think part of that may be to do with the fact that actually there's, there's a big kind of memory to, to certain brands of mm. oyster sauce, and it's not necessarily about reduced oyster liquor, for example. Do you think that that's just a cultural thing, or do you think that there's, there's? Well, for me, I don't make things if somebody else makes it better. Um, I make my own exo sauce. I've never made my own oyster sauce um, because it's a lot of work and it's pretty smelly, from what I hear. <laughs> um, and you know, the yield, the the, the cost to um, yield effort. It, the cost to yield is just very, very low. So you'd have to start off with a lot of oysters in order to make this amount of oyster sauce. Um, I'd rather leave that up to, to one of the producers that makes it better. There are, there are fantastic oyster sauces in Hong Kong, um, and I'd rather just buy it. Um, and then, like, um, I used to try to make my own macaron, you know, the French um, pastry. And then I realized, why should I make it when... You end up with you know thirty of them, but how many can you eat? And it's only going to be one flavor. So I'd rather go to a shop that makes it, preferably Pierre Hermé, and buy <laughs> one or two because I only want one or two. Because if you eat more than one or two, you feel sick. It's sure. so sweet. 
Um, so but what, I, do you, what do you think about this, this, this? From what I see, is like a cultural discrepancy. Mm. Like with Western chefs, I very much still see them nowadays that they they judge your ability as a chef to do everything from scratch. Mm. So if you're gonna pickle something, you, you have to pickle it from 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 growth to pickling stage all the way through the 18 month no 20 if you're going to dry and ferment something you have to ferment it yourself whereas actually I don't I don't get that same comprehension of of, of cooking when I speak to Chinese chefs mm. every chef I've ever talked about they're, they're very functional they always say that we're celebrating the work of this produce by putting what we know into this produce to make something delicious mm. and for me it's a, it's a completely a cultural discrepancy and I, I even find that even when we we get kind of Western chefs who come to work with us. It's the number one thing that we have to try and get them to think about. Mm. You know, are we going to spend four days dehydrating something? Mm. Or are we going to use that energy to do something else? Mm. Um, I don't know. What's your take on it? Well, I, like I said, I, I don't make something if somebody else can make it better. But having said that, Vicky, Vicky Cheng from um, a restaurant called Wing... He makes his own century eggs, and they are seriously the best century eggs I've ever had. Let me make sure I'm saying this correctly. Um, Susan's digging out her phone. <laughs> Sorry. She's going to show us these, these century eggs, which she actually showed me when she came they're for lunch beautiful. last week. Oh. Yeah, they're, they're kind of they're like, different they're, trans- they're, they're a little bit more see-through, they're, and um, they're a little bit greener in shade, huh? They're a little bit greener and less black. There, there, let me, yeah, it's yeah. Vicky, Vicky Chang. I suddenly had a brain, I was thinking, did I say his name? So second, Susan's talking about a chef called Vicky Chang, who's Canadian-born, moved to Hong Kong, has some incredible restaurants, um, has won loads of awards. Mm. Um, he has one restaurant called VEA, is that Vea. correct? Yeah, yeah. Vea. So, yes. um, where he French kind of... ex-Chinese. And then his latest restaurant, Wing, which is, it, it's it's... The most beautiful is it Cantonese or just Chinese in general? Chinese in general. Ch- Chinese food in general, and mm-hmm. and basically taking things back to the one hundred and one of doing everything the old school way. Is that correct, mm-hmm. Susan? It's interesting because so you know I mean the Chinese food supply system. There's actually a lot of artisanal makers still within that supply system. When you think of Europe and the US, right? Everything's, you know, largely made from big factories, big factory farms. You've got this one standard process and only a few suppliers in your chain, right? So of course, to some extent, some of these European and American chefs want to rail against that and take it back to basics. But actually the Chinese food supply system, lots of actually almost millions of small producers producing batch, small batches of soy sauce, oyster sauce, all, all the condiments, the bamboo noodles, you know, so you, there's almost like a, a sense that actually there's some quality, there's some respect and quality of the ingredients within these small artisanal makers. So you want to work with them, you know, so to some extent you can leave that labor outside of the kitchen rather than bring it in, you know, and then focus your energy on something else, like you said. So, well, with bamboo pole noodles, I mean, it's a lot of work. Mm. And if you're only going to make, you know, how much you use a day? Oh, not much. Yeah. Yeah. I but think 200 your grams. size is too small, <laughs> as I said. <laughs> oh, wow. Gosh, it's like jewelry. It's beautiful, right? Isn't it? Wow. Um, thank, wow. Okay. I'll have a... We'll share that later. Susan... You've been writing about food for the South China Morning Post now for, uh, well, you wrote for maybe two and a half decades or something like that, right? 25 years. 
And um, of course, you have published a cookbook and you've contributed to a cookbook before. But this, this new latest cookbook um, is fascinating to us because, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting way into looking at the region East and Southeast Asia, right? Because it's, uh, it's not usual to kind of take a dish or a technique or a style and then go into East and Southeast Asia. Most cookery writers are thinking about countries. They're thinking about a corpus of dishes from their family network. What prompted you to go down this route? Or Well, I think fried chicken is universal. And even now I'm hearing about dishes that I should have included um, <laughs> and I wish I had you know, written about. Um, and I'm like, I, I say to my friends, well, why didn't you tell me about this before? You knew I was writing a book about fried chicken. You know, why are you telling me after the book's been published? But um, fried chicken is universal, and I, I have not, not been everywhere in the world, but I can't imagine other countries not having uh, uh, fried chicken dishes because it's a really efficient way of cooking um, meat because you you know you've, it's at a higher temperature than boiling and it's it's completely surrounded by the fat so it's fast and efficient and um, the flavors are just so they can be they can be changed so just by adding a little bit more of this or a little bit more of that and the ingredients that we have in East and Southeast Asia there's just so many different unusual ingredients like like salted egg yolk or um, balachan, which is uh, fermented shrimp paste. So not everybody would think of using those ingredients in a chicken dish. Um, but, you know, in, in Malaysia and Singapore, they thought of using balachan. Um, you know, in the Philippines, you know, and like Philippine fish sauce is different from Korean fish sauce, which is um, which is different from Vietnamese fish sauce. So there's different ways of varying the flavors by just even just changing the, the soy sauce or fish sauce. For my book, I s started off testing recipes using my favorite soy sauce, which is Kowloon soy. It's made in Hong Kong. And then I realized not everybody has access to Kowloon soy, so I decided to use... Kikoman all-purpose seasoning because everybody can get that everywhere. It's just they've done a great job of, of getting it in all the markets. So I wanted to standardize the recipe so that people can make it anywhere in the world. So I stuck to Kowloon soy. And then, um, but if you want to use a better soy sauce, you can. Even Kikoman makes better soy sauces, you know, that, that you know, much better than the Kikoman all-purpose soy. Mm. So you just change things, you know, how you want. Also in the book, I, I uh, talk about the chicken because, it of course, the chicken is, is so important. I mean, it's, it's impossible to make fried chicken without it. <laughs> that is a really stupid thing to say. <laughs> Can you cut that out? Okay, sorry. Don't worry. I've said way worse things than that, believe me. Susan, don't you worry about it. Um, you need chicken to make fried chicken, don't worry. <laughs> we live in a world of veganism, of wokeness. Yeah. yeah don't worry about it. It's not given. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing is given. Okay. Um, the, the, fried, the chicken is, of course, essential. And I know that here, when I read recipes written in the UK, it always says... Uh, chicken, you know, in, in the ingredients says chicken, preferably free-range. Um, but not everybody can afford free-range chicken. So I say in the book, 
to use whatever you can afford because it's better for you to make the dish with something that you can afford than to not make the dish. So in an ideal world, we'd be using free-range chicken that's been humanely raised, but not everybody can afford it. And I'm not faulting the farmers because they also deserve to make a living, but I'm faulting that not everybody's making a good living wage. Susan, can I ask you, like with Hong Kong in particular, do you think there's something very specific about the chickens in Hong Kong that make them special? Chickens in Hong Kong are fantastic. The fresh chickens that we get in Hong Kong are so good. And even, it, it's, there's one famous brand that all the chefs use. It's not a brand, it's uh, the Three Yellows Chicken. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's not a brand, is it a breed? It's like a breed and a supplier and everything all in one, yeah. And these chickens are expensive. They're about at least 300 Hong Kong dollars. What is that in? About 30. 30 pounds. Okay. It's, about like a, it's like a poulet de breast, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's really, really good. But the chickens that I buy, which are, I, I just buy at the market, are about 70 Hong Kong dollars. So it's this, it's seven pounds, right? Yeah. Really affordable, um, and they're really, really good. And what's great about them is that they are very consistent. So I buy a chicken, I plop it on the scale, and it says 1.2 kg. It's always between 1.1 kg and 1.2 kg. They're really, really good. And they're fresh chicken with the head on, with the neck, with the feet. You chop it off and make soup with that later on. Um, and, or, you know, it makes really great roast chicken. Um, and so I, I, I love Hong Kong chickens. There's so many chefs who have come to Hong Kong and said Hong Kong chickens are the best. It, it is it is very unique. I think people can't... I don't think you can really understand the difference until you actually try it. Because you think about Hong Kong, the, the chicken is such a big part of... of Cantonese. The, the, of Cantonese food mm. in general. So the amount of chickens being used is massive. But the consistency of these chickens, I mean, whether it's from a... a, a a cafe or a Dai Pai Dong or to a, a fine dining restaurant actually am I correct in saying that most of them will still be using very very good chickens mm-hmm. right and obviously in the cuisine you use all the chicken fat mm-hmm. you use all the limbs you use every muscle you use all the cartilage you use everything mm-hmm. um, you know it, the, the best example I'll give you is, is obviously there's a new restaurant well Yardbird has been around for what about 10 15 years yeah. now, which celebrates this fact. It's like we're going to take this chicken and we're going to take every part of it apart and we're going to celebrate it through making individual skewers. Um, and you can't do that unless the chicken is is of super high quality. You can't be using the liver, you can't be using the, the ring around the, the back end of the chicken, you can't be using you know those parts would just not hold in quality if it wasn't an incredible product to start with. Um, and the skins are very yellower mm. in comparison. In, in, we're talking about a yellow colour which is more yellow than free range or, or, or any other chicken that you get in the UK. It's, it's a deep yellow. Yeah. It's a really good chicken. So Susan, do you think there's another chicken cookbook in you in that case, with all that feedback from your friends and all this amazing chicken available, or are you going to move on to other things, or what's, what's the pipeline look for you? I am taking notes on other chicken dishes that I can include if there is a Gong Bao and Beyond Part 2, um, but the book that I want to write more than anything is on innards. I love innards. I love the extremities. I love the head. I love the tail. I love... I love all kinds of innards. And Chinese people have been using innards, the whole part of the animal, 
ever since you know history began, it's 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 such an important part to not waste. Um, so I would love to write a book on innards, but I don't know if there's a market for it. What is your favorite um, awful dish? Oh, I love all kinds of awful. I love the intestines. I love the heart. I love the tails. When, when I go to a restaurant, everybody knows, I mean, a lot of the chefs know how much I love chicken tails. So they will save the tails for me, and then when I'm there, they will, they will cook them. They serve me a special dish of chicken tails. <laughs> I love that, and it makes me laugh because I, it's so touching. It's something that they might throw away, but they serve it to me because they know how much I love chicken tails. And I have the chicken tails ever since I was a young kid. Amazing. So do you think, I mean, obviously early days, but do you think this would be another way for you to explore the region again? Or are you thinking about the same kind of scale that you, you, you approached with this current cookbook? Do you think you'd apply it to the same, you know, well, same if region? You, if you go to Bangkok, mm. you can find um, grill, people selling grilled meats um, on the street, and it's really inexpensive because they they um, are selling mostly to work, you know, the working class, the you know the people who are really poor. Who, you know, who, they set up outside um, um, building sites, mm-hmm. and they have tails, uh, um, intestines, giblets, hearts, liver. And it's really cheap and really delicious. It's the sauce that makes it. And they c- cook it over charcoal. Do they say we're using bichotan charcoal? No, they just use regular charcoal. And um, they serve it with this most delicious dipping sauce. And it costs, you know, just cents to buy. And it's so good and so cheap. And there's so many dishes like that that can be written about that aren't written about. I think South... I think. Chinese food and Southeast Asian food in general probably do um, offer better than any other cuisine, I think. I mean, if, I, mean I, I don't want to f- sound biased, but if you look at kind of European cuisine across the board, I think that sometimes their sauces just don't have the same potency sometimes um, that I feel you probably need with a lot of offal because it's quite strong in aroma, you know, like, like the pig's intestine. That needs to get some serious scrubbing with some bicarb before you even mm. begin to soak it in some really spicy sauce or whatever it might be. Mm. I think sometimes with Europeans, when you're, when you're rolling it through a kind of more subtle sauce, I think my biggest problem when I eat it is that you still get a very awfully aroma coming off it. And I find that quite hard to, I wouldn't say digest, but quite hard to really accept as, as as something really delicious because the aroma is so strong sometimes. Your nose is saying, no, don't eat it. <laughs> <laughs> but then when you put it in your mouth, it can be delicious. Mm. It's like certain smelly cheeses, you know, they their bark is worse than their bite. Mm. So I think a poise is delicious, but I also, lo- you know, I love um, intestines, which, you know, when you think about it, it's quite unpleasant. You know when you think about what it does, but it's just so good. Mm-hmm. Can't wait for the research part of your, your, your project. So just one last question: What is your favorite recipe from the book? Oh my goodness, that's so difficult. Um, it well, I, I it's the recipe that I start off with my mom's chicken wings because it's something that my mother made for us when we were kids. Um, it's the first fried chicken dish that I learned to make. And so it's very important to me.
You've been listening to Exo Soused, an audio newsletter from me, Dr. Muktadas, and Chef Andrew Wong. Don't forget to leave us comments or questions so that we can tackle in later editions. Thank you.